Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Colossians in the New Testament. We're going to be looking at a passage from this epistle from the pen of the Apostle Paul and the heart of the Holy Spirit looking for direction that's very practical in its intention in our lives. Studs Turkel is a name that's probably not familiar to many, if any, in the room. This man lived almost 100 years. His life was incredibly productive. He was a Pulitzer Prize winner for general nonfiction. One of the books which he wrote that got that award for him was called Working. In it, he says many provocative things about the whole subject of work. But I'm going to quote two lines from that book and then make some application from it. He said, most of all, most of us as people are looking for a calling, not a joy. But most of us have a job that is too small for our spirit. That sounds rather spiritual, actually. It's interesting that he would make mention of a calling. A calling presupposes someone calling us and we know that one who calls us is none other than the God of the universe. And for him, he said his own admission was that he was an agnostic. And then he very wryly, he was a very witty man, followed that up by saying an agnostic is a cowardly atheist. That's what he said. So he had a good sense of humor. But he was on target in a way, because the Bible says in the book of Genesis chapter 1 that God created us in His image. Now, when the Word of God says that, the Bible talks about how God has created the universe. In six days, He created the universe. On the seventh day, we know, He rested. On the sixth day, before that day being inaugurated, He said, let us make God in our own image. One of the aspects of the image of God is that we who bear it have an innate desire to work. We see it in children. We see it in young adults. We see it in adults. We have an inclination to work. That is a reflection of the image of God. Please understand that before Adam sinned, he worked. And we know after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. The Bible says that the part of the curse on Adam and men is that they will work and the sweat will drip off their brows. It'll be hard for them in their workplace, but still it's a gift from the Lord, I would say, this matter of work. Most of us have jobs that are too small for our spirit. And we really want a calling rather than a job. Let's look at the passage of Scripture today, which is going to talk about this calling that is mentioned by this man. We're in Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to begin with verse 22. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you to have a master in heaven. Now let me cut to the chase. I want to address the whole issue of slavery. Does the Christian message support the institution of slavery? And the answer is an uncategorical 
No, it does not. The reason for that is very obvious when we think about a person owning another person. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes this, What? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Therefore glorify God in your body. When we come to Christ, to whom do we belong? We no longer belong to ourselves, to the world, the prince of the world, Satan himself. Rather, we belong to God. God owns us. And these words were written to people who had given their lives to Christ in whom the Holy Spirit dwelt. Paul had no notion of supporting slavery. So why does he not blast it? Why does he not confront it more fully in this passage of Scripture? Two reasons I'm going to give. One is because just a few years before this epistle was written, less than a century, there was an uprising led by a man named Spartacus. Spartacus either was a slave or had been a slave. He was a gladiator, and he led a rebellion of 100,000 slaves who took on, audaciously took on, the Roman army. For two years, it was a bloodbath, and both sides suffered. It looked as though Spartacus's army was going to overcome the Roman army. But as things turned out, that did not happen. There was a bad ending to this rebellion. Spartacus himself was killed in the final battle. And then, to make a point, the general of the Roman army who had been a senator before being commissioned by the Roman Senate to take this project on, he had 6,000 of those who were captive, who had been part of this rebellion, and he crucified them on the Appian Way. Some of you remember your Roman history. The Appian Way was that major thoroughfare, artery of traffic that came into and left Rome. 6,000 people crucified at the same time. And it showed the intolerance. It was a statement, the intolerance for emancipationists, what would happen to them. And so the Apostle Paul knew in the fledgling church it was important that the gospel spread and the Pax Romana permit, permitted that, the peace of Rome, and he wanted the church to get off to that kind of start. That's one reason. Another reason is because of a little epistle, the shortest of all the writings of Paul, Philemon. You're familiar with the book of Philemon, perhaps. Philemon was a wealthy man who came to Christ through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He is actually a son in the faith of the Apostle Paul. He was a slave owner. One of his slaves by the name of Onesimus escaped. Onesimus was not a believer in Christ when he escaped. He made his way to Rome. Rome was a sanctuary for runaway slaves. It was such a huge city, it was easy for runaway slaves to find refuge and security from being re-enslaved. As God would have it, this man Onesimus ended up rubbing shoulders with the Apostle Paul. Paul was one who shared Christ consistently and all the time, it seems. And so this man Onesimus, the runaway slave, came to Christ. He was altered irreversibly by the grace of God. And in conversation, Paul learned, if he didn't already know, by association with this man Philemon and his wife, that this man was a once slave of Philemon. So he wrote a letter to Philemon. It went along with this letter to the Colossians. The person who was given the responsibility to take the letter back was accompanied by Onesimus, and he told Onesimus, go back to Philemon and let him know you've come to know Christ. In the letter, he talks to Philemon about this man, Onesimus, being his brother. Not a slave, but his brother. Fast forward 30 some odd years. 
a writer of early Christian history, makes reference to Onesimus as being the bishop that would be the head pastor of the entire church in the city of Ephesus, the most populated and the most important of all those cities in what we now know as Turkey, what was known as Asia Minor then. So what happened? This man Onesimus, Onesimus went from being a slave to a brother to being a bishop. Obviously, he was freed from his slavery. And Paul understood, and anyone who knows the gospel understands, wherever the gospel goes, it breaks down all kinds of barriers. In fact, if you'll look up the page to verse 9 of Colossians 3, the scripture says, Stop lying to one another, since you laid aside the old man with its evil practices, and have put on the new man, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, look, slave and free man. But Christ is all and in all. We have no idea how revolutionary the gospel was and the message of the Apostle Paul is consistent when it comes to matters that are social in nature, especially as it relates to people based on their rank in the particular era of their society. According to the Word of God, what happened to Onesimus was predictable. And what happens when people come to know Christ all those man-made institutions which elevate some men and denigrate others are removed. The Church of Jesus Christ of all entities in the world, this is the genius of God in part with the gospel. All these barriers which have been erected by men of evil intent are abolished. And that's what Paul knew would happen and did happen as the gospel spread. And people like Onesimus, who had been a slave, and people like Philemon, who had been a slave owner, things began to settle out. And please remember what the Bible says also in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 on this subject of slavery and freedom. Paul writes to those in Corinth these words. He says, if a man who was a slave has received Christ, that man is Christ's freedman. And a man who once owned slaves, who has come to know Christ, is Christ's slave. In other words, we are under the management, absolute authority of none other than Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus Christ is one who wipes out all distinctions which mankind has made to separate people. He is the great uniner. Jesus is. And the body of Christ is a place where people of all races, all social statuses can come and be one in Him and love Him and serve Him. This passage of Scripture which we're reading today is one which challenges us in the 21st century to bring our entire life under the management of Jesus Christ. After all, he describes, Paul describes Jesus as the Lord Christ. The word Lord carries with it the idea of absolute authority over an individual. Jesus is the one who is our Lord. Now let me back up just a moment and make an mention of something about Jesus that I forgot to mention in the worship service earlier. Verse 24, look at it again. I just quoted it, but I want you to see it with your own eyes as I read it. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. The word translated serve there is the word whom you serve as a slave, really, is what it means. And that is applicable not only to the people to whom this letter first went, who were in a state of enslavement, but it would be true of their masters also. It is the Lord Christ 
whom we serve as slaves. You might say that's denigrating in and of itself. Well, it would be perhaps if it were not for what the Bible tells us about Jesus himself. Now listen, in the book of Philippians chapter 2, that great passage, one of the four or five greatest passages in the New Testament about God becoming a man in the person of Jesus Christ. In Paul's description of the incarnation of Christ, he says he took on the form of a servant is the way the modern translations translate it. The word form means that which is internal, which expresses itself externally in the demeanor and the behavior and the being of that individual. He took on the form of a servant. Would it surprise you to learn that the word servant is the word slave? Jesus took on the form of a slave. To whom was Jesus a slave? He was a slave in a sense to God the Father. He willingly submitted himself, he being God, the Son of God, yes, but fully God and fully man. He willingly submitted himself to be in that position of subservience to the Father. Where do we see this played out in the gospel? In many places, but let me just simplify it. Jesus makes statements in John chapter 5 and John chapter 8 to this effect. He says, the Son of Man can do nothing of Himself. He only does what He hears the Father say. He only says those. He only does those things which He sees the Father doing. Jesus understands the whole matter of submission. We are called to be submitted to Christ. And He is a wonderful Master, isn't He? He means no harm to us. To the contrary, He liberates us from our own enslavement to sin. He says, Jesus says in John chapter 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He goes on to say in that chapter, He talks to us about being people who if we continue in His word, we abide in His word, we shall know the truth, and what will the truth do for us? It will set us free, free from the bondage of sin. And we are under His leadership. Years ago, Bob Dylan, by the way, Studs Terkel, I mentioned him earlier. Not only was he a great author of nonfiction, but he also was a great broadcaster. He was really the pioneer of the talk show on radio back in the 40s and 50s of the 20th century. He interviewed Bob Dylan, among others. Bob Dylan had a song, You Gotta Serve Somebody. Any of you remember it? You might be an ambassador to England or France, and I don't know what he said after that, but he said, you gotta serve somebody. You know what I mean? got to serve somebody. We all, we were created to serve, but the one we were created to serve is God himself, and more precisely in our lives as followers of Jesus, Jesus is our Lord. It is the Lord Christ whom we serve, and that is the way this life that we've been given is to be lived. When Jesus manages your life, your job is your ministry. Well, let me reverse that just a little bit. When Jesus Christ manages my life, my ministry is my job. All of us have been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light for the express purpose of ministry. Everyone in this room who knows Jesus, you are a minister. There is no gradation from God's perspective of people who are of greater importance there is no pecking order in the body of Christ for people who are more important to the enterprise of the spread of the gospel through the church of Jesus Christ. We all are one and we form one body. We all have functions to perform in the body and God wants to use us to glorify Him. So let's begin with this principle. When Christ manages our work, submission to our human 
Authority is our mandate. It's not optional. If you think that Christ's demand that you submit yourself and your work to your superior is strong medicine, we have to simply remember what we've already seen, that there were people who at the moment of this letter were people who had no rights whatsoever. But they had the rights that pertain to people who know Jesus Christ and the freedom that comes to them. God doesn't endorse slavery as we have seen. And we need to understand that as it was true for these who first received the letter, we are to obey the Lord in everything. Look at verse 22 of Colossians 3. Slaves in all things keep on obeying those who are your masters on earth, not with external service. Let me stop there for just a moment. Some of your translations say not with eye service. In other words, our work, whatever your work is, when you go to work, some of you will go to work before this day is over. Others will report to work tomorrow. Whatever your place of work is, you're not to do it just for window dressing. You're not to behave when the eye of your superior is on you. You're to do it when that person is with you, but also when that person is not in the room. Why are we as believers to do that? We have Christ as our master. He is all-knowing, ever-present, and He knows. He wants us to serve Him continually, and that bleeds over into our serving the human master, if you will, that we find over us in the workplace. It's inevitable that you will find yourself disagreeing with your boss from time to time, but you're to obey in everything if Christ is your Lord, with this exception. If your superior on the human level ever asks you to do something that is in contradiction to God's word, you politely say, Sir, Madam, I cannot do that because I have a higher allegiance, that being the person who is my Savior and my Lord, Jesus Christ. What this will do, it will whet the appetite in time of that person who is over you to want to know what makes the difference in you as opposed to your co-workers who yet know Christ. At all times we're to do this kind of submission. Do you see a man skilled in his work? The writer of Proverbs says, he will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. If you and I have the right mentality that Christ is our boss, ultimately, what we're doing, we're doing it for Him, not for ourselves, not for the plaudits of men, not so we can make more money. We're doing it for Him. The impact is going to be immediate and lasting because what will happen, our skill will increase because we're wanting to become good stewards of the talents God has given us and serve the Lord with gladness as we work the works that He has called us to do. Interest in eye service in work is largely responsible for poor craftsmanship in American workplaces today. A follower of Jesus Christ should have excellence as his or her goal in work. A believer must abandon the clock watcher syndrome by submitting to his superior at all times. In order to submit to our superiors in all things at all times, we must do what we do with simplicity of heart. Let's go back to verse 22 for a moment. Slaves in all things keep on obeying those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, that's eye service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. The fear of the Lord is what moves us, drives us. We want to obey the Lord because we love Him. We revere Him. And the idea of sincerity of heart, the word sincerity was used to describe a piece of cloth that had no wrinkle in it. 
Our personalities, our character should be seamless in the workplace. Every place it should be, but certainly in the workplace it should be like that. Thoroughness is characteristic of a person who understands this principle when Christ is her Lord or is his Lord. A man by the name of Auguste Bartholdi was the one who created the Statue of Liberty. I have been to New York City, but I was there for a very brief time. My host had a plan for us, and that plan did not include going to the Statue of Liberty. If I ever go again, I want to go there. It's symbolic of something very important, that America is a land of freedom compared to the vast majority of the world. Mr. Bartholdi died shortly after the turn of the 20th century, before the Wright brothers had invented, if you will, the ability to fly in an airplane. This great feat of his with the Statue of Liberty was completed, placed on Ellis Island offshore. And if we were to fly over that today in a helicopter, what we would do when we look down over the statue itself, we would find that the head is not without detail. It's not just smooth. It has every bit as detail on the head, which is not visible to people who climb up the statue, would not have been visible as far as Bartoldi would know in the future, but it has all the detail there on the top of that figure's head. It's a picture of someone who did things thoroughly, didn't skimp. We should do our work in the workplace as we're doing it unto the Lord. And we're to be as thorough there as you would be if you had my position here today. Remembering that each one of us who knows Jesus has been equipped with talent. God gives you your talent in order to be used for his glory too. He gives it, it's our responsibility to develop that skill, but also he's given us a spiritual gift to come alongside of that. And God wants to combine those things to bring glory to the Lord. Let me turn my attention now to those who are present who manage our own businesses with employees. You have a superior too. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. The word master in both cases in verse 1, masters in the plural, then in the singular, translates the same word that's translated to describe Christ. It is the Lord the word Lord there is kurios in the same word is used here in verse 1. Well, let me stop here just a minute. We have many entrepreneurs in our church, many people who occupy positions of leadership in their businesses. We have a smaller number, but still a sizable number of people who own their own business. What I've learned, and I've grown in appreciation for many of our business owners, and I don't pretend to know how all of them run their businesses, but I've had close association with several of the owners of businesses in a discipling relationship. And what I know is those men look at their employees as part of their family in a way. They care for their family. In a way, they're almost like pastors of their businesses. They care that way for them. And if you are not that minded in your leadership, please take note that it's possible. We see it around us. But there's a strong warning that these masters must grant their slaves justice and fairness. And by the way, the word translated fairness is a word which was used in the city-states of Greek living before this, the pure city-states, in those city-states, every free man was a man who had an equal vote to whoever was the leader of the whole city. Every vote was equally significant. It's a pure democracy. What this suggests is equality of people. 
in the body of Christ. So when you have people who work under your leadership, you have to give leadership. Sometimes that's not pleasant. You have to correct people when they're wrong. You don't ignore slipshod work. You address it. You want to hear what they say about why they're doing what they're doing or not doing what you know they're charged to do, but you deal with them in a sense of fairness as you would if you were in their shoes, speaking the truth in love to them about such a thing. We who have responsibility to lead people, we have responsibility of supervision over people, we need to make sure their assignments are fair and their pay is just. If we took time, we could go to James chapter 5 where the writer talks about the importance of this. There are consequences if we don't submit to the authorities above us. Look at verse 25. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. I want to hold that idea without partiality for a little later in the teaching today, but there are consequences. We'll be called on, without exception, all of us who know Jesus, we will be called on to give an account at the judgment seat of Christ of our lives after we received Christ. Everything before we received Christ, blotted out. But when we come to Christ, we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we will not be punished at that point. What we will be, we'll be people who receive rewards based upon our submitting ourselves to the Lord, depending upon Him for everything. And some of our life will burn up because it's possible, if not probable, all of us will have done certain things that were out of keeping with the Lord. And let me explain what I mean by that. Obviously, it would be disobeying what God says in His Word. But probably even more important, we can do right things for the wrong reason. Have you ever done that? I've done way too much right stuff for the wrong reason. Here's what the difference is. The right stuff done for the right reason, that right reason being that I'm depending on the Lord, realizing that apart from Jesus Christ, I can do nothing, nothing. So I have to depend on the Lord for everything that I do. That is, I take that seriously. Apart from Him, I can do nothing. I live in the atmosphere of submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as He reveals things to me, and He continues to do that, that are out of keeping with His will, then I make the necessary adjust, adjustment in my life, and you too have that responsibility. If your employer mistreats you, be sure he will pay for it at Christ's hand. That's what the Lord says. Vengeance is mine, God says, I will repay. Don't take matters into your own hand. Don't retaliate, whether through passive aggression or in-your-face sort of deal, just wait on the Lord, watch Him work to exonerate you and to eventually elevate you. If you mistreat one of your employees, you will pay too. God won't overlook our idleness as workers even if you have been wronged as workers. But God knows about it. Employers will be called to give an account. Obviously, there is no favoritism. I love this, don't you? We've already talked about it. Equality is the rule of the church as far as Jesus is concerned. Now, let's look at the last part of this teaching. First of all, when Christ manages your work, submission to the earthly authority placed over you is your mandate. It's what you're to do. But when Christ manages our work, service to our Savior is that which motivates us. Think about our Lord Jesus. What a wonderful boss He would be, right? Well, He is our boss already. That's what the Scripture says. It is the Lord Christ we are serving. I read in preparation for this teaching today, in 2019, the Gallup people took a worldwide poll. And what they discovered was 85% of all worldwide workers are dissatisfied with their job. Wow, that would include somebody in this room, probably. 
I would hope that Christians would have a much lower percentage. How do we deal with the dissatisfaction? We reorient our focus. We put our eyes on Christ. And we know that Christ is sovereign in our lives. He's our Lord. That's what sovereignty means, lordship. And I think about Joseph. Joseph, innocent as it were, sold by his ten older brothers into slavery. He was sent off to a land he had never been to before. He probably didn't know the language of Egypt. He didn't know the customs. There was a different God which was worshipped. In fact, there were hundreds if not thousands of gods which were worshipped rather than the one true God. I'm sure he wrestled with that. I would have. And the amazing thing about Joseph, he was a slave slash prisoner for 13 years, from the age of 17 until 30. 13 years he was a slave. And you know what the Bible says about him? It says the Lord prospered him, gave him favor with his superiors. The people that he found himself answering to, those people were people who saw skill in him. Going back to the verse from Proverbs, do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings, not before obscure men. That eventually happened, but believe me, those 13 years were grueling for Joseph. But the thing that made them bearable was his knowledge that his God was real, and he was going to worship his God, he was going to serve his God regardless, and God rewarded that. It was painful for him. We know this from Psalm 105. It talks about how his, says his neck, literally is what the, new, the translations in English typically say, his neck was in chains. Can you see a collar around a man's neck? His neck was in chains. He probably wore that collar sometimes, but the word neck literally means his soul was in pain. The soul ache in his life was much worse than any physical thing. And his soul was tormented until the word that the Lord had given him promising what he promised him through the dreams that got him in trouble with his brothers when he told them to them, that was that which tormented him. But God used him in a way that we have a debt to pay to him. Do you know why? Because one of his brothers who would have died of starvation, Judah, one of the other sons of Jacob, he would have died. And where did Jesus come from? It had already been predicted. He came from Judah's loins. He was a descendant of Judah. And we have salvation through whom? Jesus Christ, a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Isaac, a descendant of Jacob, a descendant of Judah. That's what's at stake here. People's salvation is at stake by the way we respond in the workplace, whether we're bosses or we're employees. There's a lot at stake because God wants a demonstration of His love exhibited through people like you. Can you think about this with me a moment? We're here today, the church gathered. A lot of people think of church as just being here on Sunday. If you have that view, you need your horizons expanded greatly. This is why we gather. We gather because we want to worship the Lord. We gather for encouragement. We look around us. Look around. See all the different people here. You know some of them. I know most of you who are here. And we look at each other and we get encouragement. The very fact that we gather here is encouraging. As we worship the Lord, He is exalted. And the Spirit of God encourages us as we worship Him. We get instruction as we gather here. We are the gathered church, but we're going to be the scattered church in about 15 minutes. <laughs> we're going all over El Paso. Some of you will go up the road to Las Cruces. Some of you are just visiting here, going back to your place of home. But when we go, think about this. What a mighty army God has. I'm one person. We have four pastors and a lot of directors of ministries, but you add all that together, we've got maybe 20 people on staff. Think about it. There are probably three, 
50 to 400, maybe more than 400 people in this room, not counting the early service and last night. These people, we gather to scatter, to be salt and light, to do what God has created us to do by being who God has created us to be. We are His children and we are the servants of the living God. We must be people who bring meaning to any job we have, whether it be the most menial task or the most prestigious task we can think of. When your motivation for working is serving Christ, we work hard. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. That is to be coupled with what Solomon has written earlier in the book of Ecclesiastes in the fourth chapter, where he says this. He says, we know that what God does lasts forever. So when I link up properly with Jesus, I'm in an abiding relationship dependent upon Jesus for things that I think, things that I say, things that I do, what happens? Jesus unleashes himself through me and through you, and we go out over this city, over this county, over the state, over the world, and we are representatives of Christ. Then we come back on Sunday. For what purpose? We gather to worship the Lord, to give a witness to Christ, to encourage each other. Bless the Lord for the role that we are given to pay. We are to work and serve the Lord. The scripture says, work heartily in verse 23. Whatever you do, keep on doing your work heartily. This word heartily is a word which literally means with your soul, from your soul. Look, your job should be soul work. It's where God has placed you and it's where he wants you to bloom and he wants you to put off a fragrance. Remember what Paul said about himself and his companions as they travel all over the Mediterranean basin preaching the gospel. He said, we are an aroma, a beautiful fragrance of Christ wherever we go. This is our opportunity and fruit will be born out of our lives individually and as a church that's unprecedented in the history of this church at least, unprecedented in the impact our lives will have individually and collectively. There's no room for laziness in the Christian church, in the workplace. Believers in Jesus Christ should be the hardest working people. Why? We work for Jesus Christ. That's why. And we are to be people who are like Mrs. J.O. Williams of Nashville, Tennessee. Her garden was her own creation. It could have been and should have been a front page picture on better homes and gardens. And she was asked, Mrs. Williams, do you have a green thumb? She said, no, I have a dirty thumb and a purple knee. She was a person who knew how to work, didn't she? And we who know Christ should have that kind of incentive. Service for our Savior results in an eternal reward. Remember that our service for our Savior Christ will reap deferred payments. One thing that happens when we come to know Christ and we grow in Christ, one thing that happens is we begin to look at money differently. We look at money as something God has given us the power to make according to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And we look at money as a means to the end of glorifying God. We know money in itself is neutral. But we who have money, and all of us have a certain degree of money, we need to be good managers of that money, managing it in light of what Christ tells us to do with it. And when we do that, God uses that to glorify himself. And we don't work for money. That's a bad reason to work. Work for the glory of God. You will get paid for it. And if you continue to explore what that means in terms of the use of the money God gives you. He gives us everything richly to enjoy, by the way, according to 1 Timothy chapter 6, I believe it's verse 20, everything richly to enjoy. But the greatest joy is using it to help others is what he says, especially those 
in the body of Christ who are needy. We're not to store up our treasures on earth, are we? Hide them out, protect them. We are to lay up treasures in heaven. And the way we do that is by serving Christ as our Lord and Savior. Let me tell this story as I conclude today and give you some questions you can take home with you to ponder in light of what we've looked at in this passage, but also as you look at the rest of Scripture in your search for understanding how you are to be the best worker God has called you to be. The story is told about a young virtuoso prodigy pianist. He was giving a concert in a notable theater. The place was filled. His music was rhapsodous. It captured the hearts and the minds of those who were there. And a lady came up to him afterwards and said to him, your music lifted my soul. But why did you occasionally look up to the second balcony as if you were in another world? And he said, the reason I looked to the second balcony is my maestro, my teacher was there, and I look for his approval in a smile. Our God is in the heaven. He does whatever he pleases. But he looks down, and he is a loving father. He is heartened when his children understand this principle that when we belong to Jesus, we live in a, such a way that will be reflective of his nature, his character, and we fulfill our intended purpose that God has called all of us to ministry. Not just a handful, but all of us to be involved in the work he has. By keeping our eyes on Jesus and seeking to please Jesus in our work, we, like that young musician, will do exactly excellent work. And others benefit from our devotion to our Master in heaven. Here's some questions. Here's a big one. Why am I here? Well, God knew what he did when he created you. When he formed you in your mother's womb, when the egg was fertilized and from that one cell came trillions of cells, your genetic code was punched in. And that code in included your skill set, your temperament. Read about it in Psalm 139 at your leisure. And what God did in that moment is he put together a special package in you. God made some to be farmers, others doctors, truck drivers, lawyers, factory workers, so on and so forth. But the reality is he made all of us to fill a slot in his economy, in the kingdom of God. Here's a second question. For whom do I work? Well, this should be easy to answer. You work for Christ. He is your Lord. He is your ultimate boss. The Bible says this in 1 Corinthians 3. Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, you are God's fellow workers. We are yoked up to none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. You shall find rest for your souls. We are to be people who yoke up with Christ. We work side by side with the creator of the universe. He indwells us. He empowers us. He enlightens us as we go about this wonderful opportunity to share Christ with others. Martin Luther, the great reformer, would preach to congregations there were congregations that were populated largely by what we would call commoners. And he would say frequently, he said, many of you are milkmaids here. Let God milk your cows through you. This is what God wants to do through you. He wants to do whatever assignment you have in your work. He wants to do that work through you, and he will use you as you let him in these settings in which you find yourself to minister to other people. Here's the third question. What are you working for? It's not a good thing to work for money. It's not even a good thing 
to work for personal achievement. Paul McCartney allegedly is the most prolific composer, at least was one time in his life. He was interviewed by Geraldo Rivera, and Geraldo asked him, do you do all this composing for money? He said, I did, but I don't anymore. He said, now I do it for personal achievement. Look, personal achievement isn't even the right goal. We do it in order that we might fulfill our purpose of being salt and light, and Christ will use you and me wherever we go if we have this mentality. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of God. What are we working for? Well, it would be if we're on track to please Jesus. Because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, it says we make it our goal to please Christ. What kind of place am I in, you might ask, in your workplace? Well, the place that you are in is the place that God wants to impact for His glory. There's no telling how many people could come through the life of one man or one woman in this room. If you understand this and you begin to trust God enough to practice what this teaches in terms of your relationship to the one who's over you, or if you own the whole shooting match and you begin to deal with your people with fairness and justice and you're generous with your people, no telling what God will do in using your life to glorify Him. I close with this quotation from A.W. Tozer, great man of God from the last century. He said, let a man, it would be true of a woman as well, set apart the Lord God in his heart. Put Jesus first is what that simply means. And that person can thereafter do no common act. Listen, living itself that life will be sacramental and the whole world a sanctuary. When we walk out of these doors today, and we go to our cars, and we go to our respective homes or workplaces, we go in the name of the Lord. Whatever you do, Paul writes earlier in Colossians 3, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We ask you now, Lord, to help us to take this passage of Scripture, help us to sort out those things that are applicable to us, and help us to be a people who recognize Whose we are, we are yours, Lord, and what your mission for us is, to represent you well and let our light shine before men so that they will glorify you, our Father in heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.